we're pulling a book out of the Old Testament and looking at it. It's the book of Judges. And we've said every single week that the book of Judges is a series of true stories that are written with the intent to show God's people God's grace and therefore to call them to faith and obedience. And if you've been with us this semester, you've seen that it's been a graphic, bloody, disturbing book already in the first you know, few weeks of the semester. We've had thumbs and hands and feet chopped off. We've had uh, people getting stabbed in the stomach and pooping themselves. Uh, we've had tent spikes going through people's skulls. Tonight's actually um, a pretty tame story, comparatively. So you can, you can breathe easy for a week. But here we are in Judges chapter 6. It's a long passage, so I'm just going to read it straight through if you would uh, bear with me. And um, after we read it, we'll consider it together, okay? So let me read it, and then we'll, we'll look at it. <clears throat> Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Again... The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites, they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are, all the one, where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah, a flower, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. 
When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizarites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray together and uh, ask God to teach us, okay? So let's pray. Father, we, um, uh, we need you in these next few moments to send your spirit to apply these words to our heart so that we would be able to see the glory and the beauty of who you are and what you've done. So please come now, be our teacher, and help us to navigate a, a very long, a very thick, very um, bizarre passage. Uh, we, we can't understand it apart from you, so please come now and be our teacher. And we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the story that we just read is not about how Gideon becomes a Christian. However, it's very similar. Because the way that God calls Gideon to himself is in some ways the, the template. It, it's in some ways the, the paradigm for how God calls any individual to himself. And so, as you are wrestling with questions such as, where am I spiritually? Uh, do I have faith? And, and how would I know? Uh, how do I know if God has called me, is calling me? I, I think all of those questions, this text is particularly helpful to answer. And so really what I want to do tonight is just try to answer one question, is, is this. How does God call people to himself? And we're going to see that he does so in three ways. Uh, he speaks up, he enters in, and he calls forward. Those are the three things that I want to look at. He speaks up, he enters in, he calls forward. Okay, let's look at this one at a time. He speaks up. In the first six verses, verse 1 through 6, we get the setting of this story. And it says that, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you've been with us this semester, that's starting to sound redundant. We heard that every single week. Here they lapse again, and God hands them over to this foreign nation called Midian. And Midian, as we see in this story, are unbelievably oppressive to the people of Israel. They uh, steal all their crops burn all their land, completely ravage everything. They're basically like really, really mean school bullies. And as a result, because the people of Israel are so mistreated, because they're so hungry, because they're so terrified, they cry out to the Lord for help. And what does God do? In verse 8, it says that he sends them a prophet. A prophet is basically someone who is a, who has uh, the, the words of God. He's basically sending them a preacher. Now, how does that make any sense? This, this is kind of like, let's say you're feeling terribly sick. You're in pain, and you go to the doctor, and then you know, you wait in the waiting room, and then they call you back, and you wait in that smaller waiting room. And you're back there for 10 minutes, and after 10 minutes, in walks a car mechanic. You're thinking, 
that's not what I need right now. And so the people of Israel are thinking, dude, we're getting beat up here. We need, like, Liam Neeson with a machine gun. We, we don't need a preacher with a sermon. Thanks, though. Catherine was like, really, Liam Neeson? It's like, he's the new Chuck Norris. He is. <laughs> anyway, God sends this prophet, somebody who has the, the words of God, and this prophet speaks up in two ways. Look at it again with me. Uh, the first way, the first thing that the prophet does is he reminds them, he reminds the people of God's faithfulness and his grace. L- look at verse 8 again. It says, um, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the, land, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. God's, he, God's reminding them of his grace. He says, look, the way that we got into this relationship was that I saved you by grace. You didn't didn't merit it. You didn't deserve it. But because I love you, I I pulled you out of slavery in Egypt. The second thing that the prophet does when he speaks up is he he confronts them on their sin. Look Look at verse 10. It says, I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. He calls them out on their disobedience. But here's what I want you to see. Notice the order here. The order is everything. God leads and says, I've saved you by grace, by grace alone. And my expectation was that if you have experienced my grace, if you have tasted my grace, that will lead to a life of obedience and to a life of following me. So you see the order, salvation first, grace first, then obedience. And what I want you to know is that this really is unique from every other religion in the world. Every other religion does it the other way. They basically say, you need to obey. You need to do this, you need to do that. You need to uh, keep all these rules, do all these rituals, do all this stuff. And then on the basis of how well you perform, then God will save you or not. But Christianity says the exact opposite. Every, every other religion basically says, if you boil it down to a formula, would say, I obey and therefore God saves me. Christianity says the exact, same, the exact opposite. God has saved you and therefore I obey. God has saved you completely by grace. It's unmerited. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. And because of that, therefore I obey. Think of it like this. Let's say you're walking by a an apple tree, and uh, it's, you know, tons of apples in the tree, and uh, if you were to see all these apples in the apple tree, you would conclude that the tree was alive and well. The, the apples prove that the tree is alive, but the apples are not what is providing the tree with life, right? That the tree is getting life from, from the roots, pulling out the nutrients from the soil, the, 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 the apples are basically just a sign. The apples are the test to show you that the tree is alive. They're, they're, not, what, they're not what is providing the life. They're what, they're what is proving the life. So, if you consider yourself a Christian tonight, if you claim to be saved by grace, and I do, that means that you and I have to ask ourselves some really hard questions. If we were to look at your life, the way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your money, the way that you spend your energy, what you do when you're by yourself, what you do when you're not at RUF, when you're not at church, when you're not at class, what would we see? Would we see fruit, as it were? 
In other words, would we see obedience and faith and good works? Uh, Would we see a growing hatred for your sin and a growing love for God and for his glory? A, A growing willingness to want to serve and to meet the needs of other people? Because as this passage is suggesting, that those things are the test to show you, to show the world, if you've really tasted, if you've really experienced his grace. Because if you haven't, and none of that stuff is there, then your confession, if you claim to be a Christian, then it's a sham. There's no fruit on the tree. It's, the tree doesn't look good. That's the first thing that we see. God speaks up, and he leads with his grace. But, notice this. If you have a God that just stands on the sideline of people being miserable, and all he does is speak, that's kind of worthless. We don't just need more information, and God knows that. So God doesn't just speak up. He actually enters in, and that's the second thing that I want to look at. He enters in. How deep, though? How far does God enter into Gideon's life and into this this particular story? Well, he does so in three ways. Again, and we're going to kind of camp here for the bulk of the rest of our time, the second point. We'll mention the third point briefly. How deep does God enter into Gideon's life and ours? Here's the first way that he enters in. He enters into our fear. He enters into our fear. If you look at verse 11, we're introduced to this character called the angel of the Lord. This is an Old Testament figure that keeps popping up throughout the Old Testament. It's kind of odd, kind of mysterious. And the angel of the Lord is basically God's alter ego. Let me explain what I mean by that. The angel of the Lord is basically this divine messenger that God sends. But if you noticed in the story, the angel himself is being identified as God. It's like their identity is, is he a messenger of God or is he God? It's kind of one and the same. This is basically God showing up in the form of this angel of the Lord. So God comes to Gideon where? What is Gideon doing in verse 11? It says that he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, normally, you would thresh wheat out in a field. Because what threshing wheat... (laughs) Cool quip. What threshing wheat is, you get this... um, you get this rake-looking thing, and you get a, a, a um, glob of wheat. I know this is very technical. <laughs> glob is not the right word. Bundle. Let's do, let's do bundle. You do a bundle of wheat, and you get a rake, and you throw it up in the air, and the wind would, would, would uh, take away the flaky chaff, the part that you don't want, kind of get the chaff away, and then the kernel, the part that you would want, would fall to the ground. This is basically a very efficient way to separate the husk from the kernel without having to do it individually one by one. But Gideon's not out in the field threshing wheat. He's in a wine press, which is indoors, like in a silo, where people would stomp grapes to make wine. Why in the world is homeboy throwing up wheat in a wine press? It's because he's afraid. He's afraid that if he's out in the open and the Midianites see him, They are at best going to just take his food, or at worst they're going to kill him. And so out of fear, he's hiding. Everyone in this room is hiding as well. At some level, you are driven by fear, and so you hide. And there's lots of ways that we very very sophisticatedly hide from each other so that other people don't really see us. Other people don't really get to know us. One way that we can hide is just hide behind our personality, 
hide behind our sarcasm and our cynicism and our jokes, our humor. We can hide behind our athletic gifts, our athletic abilities. Uh, We can hide even behind our spirituality and just show everybody a spiritual front so that nobody can get around the smoke screen and actually get to know us. All of us at some level are hiding from other people because we don't want other people to actually see us, to actually know us. Do you realize how deep the fear runs in your heart, in your life? I had no idea how deep the fear ran in me, really until last semester. Uh, I was going through counseling, uh, meeting with a counselor to process why I am the way that I am and why I struggle in the ways that I struggle. And uh, in one of our sessions, it was like he got into my soul and just slit me open and just totally exposed me. And it was one of those moments where it was like, it was a eureka moment where I began to think and realize how much of my life has been driven by a fear of looking stupid. And when I thought about it and I traced back through my life, it made so, it, everything began to click and make sense. For example, when I was in college and even through seminary, I hated classes that they weren't lecture-based. I, I hated the class discussion thing. And I never spoke up, never participated. I just sat on the sideline. And I realized why. Because in those contexts, I was so afraid of, of asking a question or of saying something. Because when you put yourself out there, you run the risk of saying something wrong. And I was afraid if I said something wrong, everyone's going to think I'm stupid. So I, I, I didn't say anything. I, I had no idea until last semester how deep the fear ran, even in my own life, how much of my life is driven by a fear of looking stupid. What is it for you? What is it that you are afraid of being seen as? What, what is it that you're afraid of losing? I, mean, for, I think for a lot of us, we are so afraid of failure, and that is what is driving us to be hyper-perfectionistic, to get straight A's. We are so afraid of failure. Or we're afraid of just disappointing our parents, maybe disappointing professors. For a lot of y'all, y'all are uh, desperately afraid of losing your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and so you get super jealous and crazy clingy because you're so afraid of losing them. Uh, another thing that we can be afraid of is, is just to be so afraid that somebody's going to discover our pasts or somebody's going to uh, find out about our current struggles, our current secrets. The fear runs so deep. All of us are plagued with these deep fears. And what I want you to see is that that's exactly where God shows up in this story. Here Gideon is terrified, and that's right when God shows up. God enters into his fear, and he enters into ours as well. But let's keep going. Not only does God enter into our fear, he also enters into our doubt. Did you notice it when we read it in verse uh, 13? Well, the verse before it, the angel of the Lord comes up to Gideon and says, the Lord's with you. And Gideon's response, I I think, is really fascinating. Look at it in verse 13 again. He says this. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, Why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying this. Look, all of our fathers before us, all the people before us in the Bible, said that God loves us and he cares for us and he protects us. Have you noticed my life? It is a mess. It it, it is... uh, a terrible situation. In other words, what the Bible says about reality does not match up to my story. 
what the Bible says is true doesn't seem to fit with the way that I'm experiencing the world. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that is you, right? This is me. This is us. We have these same reactions because what we do is, is we are looking through the lens of our circumstances to evaluate God. And because of our struggles, because of our situations, because of our issues, we are looking through the lens of our circumstances and evaluating God instead of looking through the lens of God to evaluate our circumstances. And because we do this, this leads us to doubt. This leads us to doubt. From talking with students at App, I have noticed that all of your doubts really could be kind of compartmentalized into three different camps. Three different camps. And some of you, most of you, would find yourself in one of these three camps. The first, for, for some of you, uh, you have a content barrier when it comes to Christianity. In other words, you're on the outside looking in to Christianity and saying, I'm wrestling with whether or not I can trust the Bible, with, with I don't know who, I don't know what to do with this Jesus character. Who is that? Is he God? Is he man? What? Uh, I, I don't know um, if God exists. It's a content barrier on the outside looking in. Secondly, some, some of you wrestle with a coherence barrier. Where you're not on the outside looking in, you're, you're within the Christian system trying to make sense of it, trying for it to coherently piece together. What do you do with the doctrine of hell? What do you do with predestination? What do you do with the Trinity? Lastly, some of you are wrestling with um, cost barriers. Where you're saying, if Christianity is true, that means I'm going to have to make some changes uncomfortable changes to my life. I I may have to stop hanging out with this group of friends. I I may have to stop participating in that activity from now on. It's a cost barrier. You are somewhere in these three camps, wrestling with doubts, wrestling with the claims of Christianity. And here's what I want you to see. God is not deterred by Gideon's doubts. He very graciously, graciously, patiently, persistently enters in and pursues him. His doubts do not throw off God, neither do yours. Your doubts, God doesn't look at you in your doubts and say, well, because you're doubting, because you don't really believe in me, I'm done with you. He actually enters in, even at that level, the questions you have patiently entering in, drawing you, pursuing you. Here's the last way he enters in. He enters in to our weakness. He enters into our fears, he enters into our doubts, and he enters into our weakness. Look at verse 15. Gideon says, basically, how can I save Israel? I am a nobody. I'm the least in my family, and my family is the weakest family. (laughs) I've got nothing to offer, in other words. In a counterintuitive way, that's actually the healthiest place to be. Because Gideon is saying, I am weak, I'm broken, I have nothing to offer. I'm not good enough. And God is saying, that's precisely why I want you. Because you know how much you need me. You are in touch with reality. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. For example, uh, before Catherine and I lived in Boone, we lived in Charlotte. 
And as we were moving to Charlotte, uh, Catherine landed a job interview with uh, Bank of America. And as she's gearing up for this job interview, she uh, was on the website, you know, the Bank of America website, uh, you know, looking at this, this team that she was going to be interviewing for. What does this team do? What would her responsibilities be? What does this particular branch of the bank do? She's doing all of her homework, looking at all of the language and the terminology of what, what are the values of the bank and how can I, you know, get in there and use some of that same terminology in my job interview. She went out and got a, you know, fancy pants, nice business suit for the interview. Uh, she was, um, uh, uh, you know, she came in with her with her resume and all of her accomplishments, and and was totally prepared for this job interview. Why? She wanted to present to them that she was qualified for the position, and she got it because she's great and was qualified. If that's how you come to God, clean yourself up and come before Him with your resume. Here's why I'm good. Here's everything that I've done. Here, because I go to church, because I'm a good person, you should save me. You should accept me. You should let me into heaven. If you come before God and you think that you are qualified, that's actually what disqualifies you. However, if you come before him and you think, I'm not good enough. I am not qualified for this. That is actually what qualifies you. It's totally backwards. We just sang it in, in the song, Come Ye Sinners. I don't know if you caught the line, but one of the lines says, all the fitness he requires, just old language way of saying, the only thing he requires, the only thing that you need, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. In other words, all you need is to feel your need. That's it. All you need is need. The problem is not many of us have that. We're not in touch with our need. Instead, we come to God with our resume, with our report card, with our accomplishments, with our credentials, and we say, here's why you should bless me. Here's why you should answer my prayers. Here's why you should accept me. Here's why you should bring me to heaven. I'm a good person. I've done this. I go to church. I'm here at RUF, blah, 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 blah. If that is you, God will look at you and he'll say, I never knew you. Who are, who are you again? But if you're like Gideon and you say, me? I have nothing. I've got no resume to point to. I've got no credentials. The only thing I can point to is a big pile of mess. God says, you're who I want. You understand your need for me. That is the prerequisite condition to connect with God and to be used mightily for his kingdom. Here's what I want you to see. Do you see how patiently and how gracious God is calling and drawing and entering into Gideon's life? He enters into his fears. He enters into his, his doubts, into his weakness. This is not the only time that God enters into human history. Centuries later, God enters into history again in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why, this is why Christians celebrate Christmas. Because it is God leaving heaven and entering into this world in a decisive way. C.S. Lewis was, uh, he lived long enough to see the first space shuttle go up in the earth, go up in the space and circle around the earth. And it was a Russian uh, space shuttle that went up and orbited the earth for the first time. And when that astronaut came back, he said this on national news, I have been to heaven and there is no God. 
C.S. Lewis was still alive, and he wrote an essay in response to this astronaut's statement. What C.S. Lewis basically says is, okay, if God is the creator, you would not relate to God in the way that someone on the first floor, first floor of a house relates to someone on the second story of a house. If God really is the creator, the way that you would relate to him is sort of like Hamlet would relate to Shakespeare. Hamlet's not going to find Shakespeare by just going up into the rafters. The only way that Hamlet is going to know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. Shakespeare has to write himself in. If we're going to know anything about God, God has to write himself into the story. He has to write himself into history. And the claim of the Bible is that he has in the person of Jesus. He has written himself in. He has entered in. But he hasn't just entered in in some objective sense only. He's also entered into your lives personally. I know because I've talked with you. Some of you have shared your story with me and you've said, you know, I was living my life and I was not seeking God, but he was, he was seeking me and he broke into my life and totally changed everything. I'm totally different. He entered in. The only reason why Jesus can enter in is because he first was cast out. The only reason why he can enter all the way in is because he was first cast all the way out at the cross. He lived the perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died in our place. So that salvation is by grace. It is not by anything that we do. It's not by our performance. It's by his. And when he enters in, and when you experience his grace, he calls you forward. And that's the last thing I want you to see. He speaks up, he enters in, and he calls you forward. And I'll be brief on this. If you look at verse 25 and 26, he calls Gideon to confront the culture's idols. Now, uh, in, in other words, he's called to participate in the redemption of the world. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to focus on that particular story. We're actually going to look at that next week because the details of the story are, are, are too great to just gloss over. So we'll look at it next week. But what I want you to see, general principle, that when you are called by God, you're also called into action. When you're called by God, you are called into action. When you've had an experience with the real God, the God of the Bible, you can no longer privatize your faith. You can no longer say, it's just me and Jesus in a corner doing high fives. You are actually called to no less than the redemption of the world. To participate in renovating and changing the world. This is actually what you were made for. Think about it. Why is it that, I mean, have you ever noticed, all the great stories are stories of the world being saved. Children know this intuitively and instinctively. If you ask a six or seven year old kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? They don't say, I want to sit behind a desk and type on a computer. They, they have dreams of participating in fixing the world, changing the world, healing the world, fixing a place that is broken, right? And, you, and you, you, know, you actually know this from your experience too. If you have ever spent a summer at a summer camp or given up a spring break to do alternative spring break or something like that, when you spend an entire chunk of time giving up your, your free time, giving up your sleep, giving up your energy for other people... At the end of the summer, at the end of the spring break, 
uh, you're exhausted, right? But it's totally fulfilling. Totally fulfilling. If you make your spring break or if you make your summer primarily about only meeting your needs and it only really just being about you, you know, playing video games all day long, hanging out with your friends, staying up till 4 in the morning and then sleeping till 2 in the afternoon, you know what that's like. You just feel bored and bloated and lonely. The, the, the irony of the human experience is that when you live for yourself, you lose yourself. You're miserable. When you only live for your happiness, for your pleasure, you're miserable. Some of you are thinking, what I want to do with my life, the number one thing in my life, the number one purpose of my life is to meet my needs. I want to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. I want to get a good job that pays a lot of money. I want to have a family. I want to have kids. I want to travel. I want to get this. I want to do that. I want to do this. All of that is great. But if that's all that there is, if the highest purpose of your life is to meet your needs, you'll be miserable. I promise you. The irony is that when you live for yourself, you lose yourself. Jesus said, when you lose yourself, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, you actually find yourself. That is where you find the joy. That is where you find meaning and purpose. And this is what you want. This is what you were built for. I mean, what greater purpose could there be than to lay down your life to serve the kingdom of God, to champion truth, to care for the poor, to fight for environmental and social justice, to, to be hospitable to outsiders, to, to lay down your life at the workplace to be excellent in all that you do. This is what you were built for. You want purpose. You want meaning. This is it. This is it. And so the question is, where on this campus is God calling you right now to serve, to lay down your life for, to invest in? What sector of this campus is God putting on your heart to say, I want to invest there, I want to serve there, I want to lay down my life to meet those people's needs in the name of Jesus? Maybe it's your fraternity or sorority. Maybe it's your family back home. Maybe it's your roommate, friends, somebody that you met in class. Look, if you are a Christian, Jesus did not shed his blood and redeem you just so that you can come to Christian meetings. He redeemed you by his blood so that you would be an instrument of grace and redemption on this, in this world and on this campus. That is why he's done it. So, God speaks up. He leads with his grace. Have you tasted it? Have you experienced it yourself? God enters in. And maybe you're sensing that God's entering into your story for the first time. Maybe you're just sensing that God's entering in in a deeper way. And God calls forward. Where on this campus is God calling you to invest, to love, to lay down your life, to, to embody the gospel here? Because that's what he is doing. He is calling you and he's calling me to be agents of change and to renovate a broken campus, a beautiful campus, but a broken campus and a broken world. Where is he calling you? Is he calling you? Do you know him? These are the questions. I'll leave you with that. Let me pray. Father, we do pray that you would give uh, us a sensitivity in our hearts to, to sense 
maybe the fact that you're calling us for the first time, drawing us to yourself, calling us uh, into your arms by your grace. I pray that for those of us here that don't know you, uh, that they would taste and, and feel the refreshing, cleansing love and grace of Jesus for the first time. I pray for those of us that claim to be Christians and yet really do just live for ourselves, that we would be uh, convicted, that we would repent, that we would come to you and follow you once we know how sweet it is and how great it is to follow you. And Father, I pray that you would show all of us ways that we can lay down our lives and and serve and meet the needs of of the, the hurting and the needy world around us. Not because we're any better, we're just as needy, but because we've tasted and experienced that you've been, that you've been good to us. Uh, so, Father, call us, draw us, allow us to see you, allow us to um, experience you. And that would be our prayer. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.